Hello and welcome to One Light, Dialogues on Religion with Dr. Farhad Shafti and your host, Veronica Polo. In this series of talks, Farhad and I discuss the role of religion and spirituality using the Islamic tradition as our framework, while simultaneously searching for universal truths that go beyond religious affiliation. Join us on our journey to untangle common misconceptions and deepen our understanding of the monotheistic tradition and beyond. Hello, welcome everybody. Uh, welcome to our 17th episode. Salamu alaikum. And today's episode is about riba, which for our listeners who might not know what that is, we will explain in a moment. And we have invited back Sitar Akram, who we had on our last episode about women. And we invited her back because this is her area of expertise. She's actually getting a PhD at the University of Leeds in this area on the prohibition of usury. Uh, riba is usury or interest, which is going to be actually one of my first questions. Is that is usury or interest the same thing, which I actually don't know. I myself am coming from a place of ignorance on this topic, so I'm going to fumble my way through this episode. Just to fill in a little bit more about Sitara, she told us in the last episode that she lives in Leeds and has been living there for about 15 years since she came from Pakistan. Um, she's a mom of two grown children, and she's um, yeah, just trying to complete her thesis. And um, I don't know if anything else you want to say, Sitara, before we start the episode. Yeah, thanks for that introduction, Veronica. Trying to complete my thesis whilst also working full time. So it's just been yeah, a long slog. <laughs> yeah. But hopefully um, completed by the end of this year. That's the plan. And of course, Farhad is here and he also is knowledgeable and has his own understanding of what riba is. So I'll probably be starting with uh, Sitara since this is her area of expertise, but I'll also be curious to hear from Parhad. So is ursary and interest the same thing? Is that an accurate translation of riba, the Arabic word riba? Not quite. Um, I think before I launch into my understanding of, of usury and, and riba, I will say assalamu alaikum to, to our audience, to our listeners. And I hope that this episode is of benefit to them. I will try not to be very technical when I explain, although sometimes I do slip into jargon simply because I come from a business and finance background in university. So inevitably that happens. If I do that, please prompt me to explain Veronica, I'm very happy for you to do that. So your question around what is riba and whether that's the same as usury. If you look at English translations of the Quran, you'll find a lot of the translations will use the word usury. In our times, the word usury refers to exploitative or very high rates of interest. Uh, interest on a loan. Okay. And this distinction actually comes from the Christian debate on usury, on riba. As you know, all monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, Islam, forbid usury. And in the Christian tradition, especially around the Reformation in the 16th century, there was a very heated debate about what usury is. And the eventual settlement on the subject really was that moderate rates of interest are fine and higher rates of interest are the forbidden usury. And you will find that in a lot of countries, you know, in America, in quite a few states, there are still usury statutes or usury laws, 
which regulate um, the rates of interest. Um, that's not the case here in Britain. You can still see payday lenders who will charge something like 1500% interest in a loan. Clearly, those are usurious loans. But the word usury itself and how that's understood very much is a Christian understanding hmm. of the concept. Okay, I didn't know that. Hmm. Now, the I Quran didn't... doesn't differentiate, though. The Quran does not differentiate between low and high rates of interest. It just uses the term al-riba or the riba. And then it's a matter of finding out what that is. And that's a highly contested area in Islamic law, um, as I'm sure Farhad would agree with that as well. It's considered one of the very complex questions in Islamic law as to what al-riba actually is. Hence my, hence my quest in my thesis <laughs> to try to understand that. Yeah, it's interesting because I was going to ask you about the context of the area of interest or usury in the Christian or Jewish tradition. And honestly, again, I'm coming from a place of ignorance, so I, this is not something that I've looked into at all. I didn't know it was something that uh, was talked about in the Christian tradition very much. I know that Jesus overturned the tables of the money lender, so you would think that that would be important. Um, but at least, and maybe just because my context is Christianity and the context of the United States or of Spain. Those are my two countries of context. And it's not something that I hear people talking about very often. So it just is, it's not even on my radar, whereas it seems that Muslims are very much concerned about it. So why are Muslims so concerned about it? Or what does it seem like I hear about it more from Muslim circles than from Jewish or Christian circles? So if I can just say very briefly what the Judeo-Christian view of um, interest taking is. So Judaism, if, if you look at Jewish law, if you look at halakhic law, it forbids the charging of usury. And again, it doesn't differentiate between higher low rates of interest. In the Old Testament, in Exodus, in Leviticus, you will find verses um, where God forbids Jews to take usury. And there is very much a link between lending to the poor and lending money and food provisions to the poor as well. So those those things are brought up in, in the Old Testament. Um, and it's in Deuteronomy that there is the, the, the very controversial verse that Jews can not charge usury from their brothers, which is then interpreted um, as and we've seen that in history as well, that Jews can actually charge interest from people who are non-Jews. That's how, you know, th this issue was picked up by, especially during the Reformation, the, the, the discomfort that Christian scholars had was around the ethnocentric nature of it, that you won't charge interest from each other, but you will charge interest from people who are non-Jews. Mm, okay. um, in terms of the Christian thought, um, you see very much the the, the canonists, the great scholastics, talk about usury a lot in the 12th and the 13th century. So Thomas Aquinas, for example, has written extensively about usury. And he uses the um, argument that Aristotle used, you know, from Greek ethics, that um, usury is the unnatural offspring of money because money has no intrinsic value. So how can you ask money to grow? on its own. That's the Aristotelian argument, which is what Thomas Aquinas builds on. And that very much remained the understanding uh, of the Christian church. And the church has always forbidden usury. Certainly the clergy were forbidden from taking loans on interest or giving loans on interest. Um, there was always a convention of these, these there were, of these laws, loopholes are found. We find that in the Jewish tradition, that loopholes are found because trade has to continue, commerce has to continue, and credit and lending is an essential part of 
that we find the same in Christianity, that people circumvented the law. And actually, we find the same in Islam. There is a hiyal literature on usury. Hiyal is the plural for hila, which means using a legal loophole um, to circumvent a law. And that was very much allowed in Islamic law. So in other words, Muslim traders and merchants were using loans all the time. Now, whether those loans were exploitative or not is a, is a different matter. So there's very much this, if you look at history of, of, of lending, you find that it is impossible to eradicate, if I can use the word eradicate, lending from the economy, because credit mm. is something that fuels economic activity. It's how you regulate mm. that credit. So you see commonalities um, in terms of the concerns um, in, in all three monotheistic religions, and you also see the circumvention of the law eventually happening uh, across, across history. What has happened, I suppose, in, in, in the Judeo-Christian world and, protect, and particularly with the Protestant ethic developing around um, the use of money is that low rates of interest were accepted. They were seen as absolutely fine. There is no moral or ethical issue raised around low rates of interest. So you see that, you know, where banking, if I can use the word conventional banking or Western style banking is established, nobody talks about interest as a moral issue anymore. Mm-hmm. What right. we've seen in Muslim lands, and you were talking, you were asking me about why it, it is so important to Muslims. I think it has become very important to Muslims. If you look at the compendium of law, the, the, the almost the codified version of law that you see in India, for example, I'm talking about pre-partition India, which is very much uses the Hanafi school of law, the same way with um, in the Ottoman Caliphate as well in Turkey. If you look at how they were talking about interest, they were actually regulating it and not eradicating it. So interest was extant in Muslim lands under the Caliphate as well. Mm-hmm. And what has happened, especially since colonial powers have retreated from Muslim lands, is that Muslims have become very conscious about how they live as Muslims. So you see movements which very much have a political focus, which are about political liberation, establishing a nationhood, establishing your own identity as nations, and then very much move towards economic liberation as well. And so if you read scholars like Abdullah Saeed, who's written extensively on riba and Islamic banking, he very much points to what he calls neo-revivalists or um Muslim scholars who very much have a political approach to Islam for whom riba becomes a very important issue. And they are the ones who start writing about it. And then gradually what you see is as their writings become more and more popular, as more and more Muslims read those books, they become more conscious of how they live their lives in in the economic milieu. So you have then seen with the establishment of Islamic banks in the 1960s, and eventually now the Islamic banking phenomenon has become very well known. And you see Muslims turning towards it more and more. It's very much a sense of, I want to live my life according to divine law, Sharia law. And one of the laws is the prohibition of interest. And so I will turn to banks now that an alternative is available. I would turn to banks, which I perceive as halal. That's the so it's very much a political shift that we've seen in the last 50 odd years. Right. So I have this article here in front of me that's from Al Jazeera that says that Indonesia's born again Muslims quit banks for Islamic finance. That's the title of the article. With exploitative interest frowned upon in Islamic law, bankers are quitting traditional banks, creating hiring woes. And then later on in the article, there's an interesting anecdote about somebody that works in the banking industry. It gives the example of a 36-year-old banker 
who found online articles labeling riba as 10 times more sinful than committing adultery with your mother. And that was enough to persuade him to quit his conventional bank job and move to an Islamic lender. So it seems like legal opinions that you can find online are quite persuasive and and changing people's day-to-day motivations. In other words, um, online legal opinions really have the capacity to really sway the way that Muslims live and act. I don't know if you want to jump in here, Farhad, and weigh in. No, I think it's interesting to uh, listen to Sitara for the rest of uh, her understanding of riba. Let's, let's listen to Sitara. Okay. I think before I give my understanding of riba, and this is very much, I'm still in the realm of speculative theory at the moment. I'm, I'm literally writing a chapter where I develop my definition of riba. So I'm not going to give a definitive comment. Um, I think that the point you've, and before I, I come to this, I think the point you've made, um, Veronica, is my experience as well. Um, I have, and I've been teaching the politics of Islamic finance for a number of years at, at Leeds Uni. And I've had lots of Muslim students in my class as well. And they are very much concerned about things like mortgages, student loans, etc. And are they delving into haram by taking on those loans? So it is a matter of concern to, to Muslims, um, to people who do want to live as Muslims under the Sharia or want to follow the Sharia. So it is very much a concern for them. And I think we can come back to that later on uh, in, in this episode. In terms of my understanding of riba. So when I started out, I'm very, I'm very honest um, when it comes to research and, and very open and transparent about it as well. When I started, when I started thinking about riba was what, 20 years ago when I'm still in business school and in Pakistan, I'm talking about this is the year 1997, 2000s, that's four years of my study. And we, I was in Karachi in the Institute of Business Administration and People who are considered the founders of Islamic financial theory, like Mufti Taqi Usmani, are Deoband scholars based in Karachi. So there was very much a very conscious sense of this literature emerging. So you had scholars like Muhammad Ubaidullah, you had scholars like Mufti Taqi Usmani um, writing extensively on this. And the the idea of riba stayed with me when I finished business school. And it was always, you know, my my dream to come back to it and, and do some research. So here I am, you know, 20 years later. So it's something that's a it's a long gestated re- piece of research is, is what I'm trying to say. And when I started seven years ago, I actually wanted to prove the traditionalist argument correct. In other words, I wanted to say that here is the evidence I bring to say that the traditionalist view of riba, which is that riba is the same as bank interest, that they're equivalent terms, that this view is correct. Because Islamic banking is based on the idea that interest is the forbidden riba and therefore Islamic banking should be interest free. So I very much wanted to cement the traditionalist point of view. When I started delving into the traditionalist point of view, I started to see some major gaps. And so my research has completely changed now to, um, in the course of the research, what I'm doing is I'm actually critiquing the traditionalist point of view. Um, This is what happens when you think about something for a long period of time. But I very much believe in following the evidence and and following what's in front of me. And in the end, as as a Muslim, as a very humble Muslim, all I can do is just make a humble effort. I could be wrong about it. But this is where I stand at the moment. Mm-hmm. So riba, the, the traditionalist definition of riba is that any increase on a loan 
or any interest charge on a loan is a forbidden riba. This is the traditionalist view. This is what you will find in Mufti Taqi Usmani's books. This is what you will find in Maulana Maududi's book, who's very, very influential um, in, in the subcontinent um, and, and, and amongst the Muslim uh, diaspora in Britain and in other places. Um, you will find the same view in um, in, in, in other works. And there's, there's a proliferation of literature on Islamic finance which upholds this view. You then have some critics of this view, like Mahmoud Al-Gamal, who is, again, a great scholar, uh, Abdullah Saeed, you've got Muhammad Omar Farooq, and they have critiqued the traditionalist view and said that this doesn't really fit in with the Quran or what we know about the history of, of riba. And what I was interested in when I started out was the socio-historical. I wanted to find out what riba actually is. What is it that people were doing on the ground, so to speak? which made riba a moral concern for God to talk about it. Because when God talks about something in the Quran, it means that he is concerned about it. And then it becomes by inclusion in the Quran, it becomes a moral concern because the Quran is a book of guidance. So there is something happening around riba, which is morally wrong. And so I wanted to just delve into the actual history of it. What was riba's practice? And that's what my search is about. It's the socio-historical of riba and then using the socio-historical information to understand what riba is and interpret the Quranic verses accordingly. That's kind of in a nutshell what I'm trying to do. Um, I have found no historical evidence for the traditionalist viewpoint. The traditionalist viewpoint comes from um, a methodological preference. So the traditionalists say that riba is an ambiguous word in the Quran. The terminology used is mujmal. It's an ambiguous word. And if it's an ambiguous word, it needs specification. It needs more evidence before we can understand what riba is. And that evidence is found in Hadith reports. And they use the Hadith traditions to then explain Quranic riba. Now, the Hadith traditions, if you look at them, and Hadith is actually pretty silent on riba. It doesn't tell us much apart from a couple of very famous Hadith reports, which a lot of people would come across if you run a search on riba, which is about, you may have heard of it as well, you know, gold for gold, silver for silver, salt for salt, dates for dates, hand in hand, equal in amount. Anything over and above is riba. It's a sound Hadith. And this hadith was very much the concern of our classical scholars. And I'm talking about the third and the fourth and the fifth century of Islam and Islamic law is becoming formalized. And this, this knowledge base, this tradition is developing. What modern scholars have done in our times is that they've just run with the classical understanding of it. Right. So the riba that we know now through our traditional sources in Islamic finance, if you pick up a book on Islamic finance, effectively, it's a neoclassical view of riba. So you take the view of riba that was developed roughly a thousand years ago and you use more modern terminology, uh, but the concept essentially is the same. And that concept as a developed in classic classical law developed because of how scholars approached this matter in the Quran by seeing riba as a mujmal word that is ambiguous and requires more detail. If you look at the Quranic discourse on riba, the Quran actually doesn't define riba at all. And in Surah Al-Baqarah, the Quran says to its addressees, you say that riba is the same as trade. And this argument is as if you have been touched by Satan because this argument is irrational. Roughly, that's what the Quranic verse is saying. In other words, the Quran is saying, you know what riba is. God doesn't need to define it. And you know that morally it's exploitative. And yet you hold it equivalent to 
trade or commerce, legitimate trade or commerce, which are not exploitative. So the Quran is saying to the Quraysh that they're basically giving a false equivalence between riba and trade, and the Quran does not define it. So the point I'm trying to make here is that to the original audience, whatever riba was, it was manifestly clear to them. They knew what it was. So then we have to delve into history and find out what it is. And there are lots of Asbab al-Nuzul type reports or occasions of revelation reports where the Sahaba are explaining, the companions of the Prophet are explaining what riba is. Riba can have various manifestations. So it could be a loan which has a very high rate of interest. It could be a loan like the Arabs practiced it in a way where they would give money to somebody, money, or they lend them dates or barley or wheat or whatever, some commodity. And then they would give that person time to pay back. And if they couldn't pay back because there was somebody in financial need, if they couldn't pay back, they would give them extra time, but they would double the amount of the loan to be paid back. Mm. And it's that doubling that the Quran refers to as well. Do not consume riba doubled and redoubled because that was the practice. You know, that is how the Arabs practice riba, which is different from how the Jews practice riba, for example, or how, you know, even if you go into the antiquity, if you go into ancient economies, if you look at Assyrian kings like, you know, Hammurabi, who are trying to regulate rates of interest. So riba has been practiced in different forms. The way the Arabs practiced it was by doubling the amount. Hmm. And this is what the Quran is referring to and saying that this is exploitative and then saying that if your borrower is in need, then give them time to repay. And if they can't repay, then remit that by way of charity. And in each instance of the mention of riba in the Quran, it is always seen as contradistinct with or opposing charity. So the opposing concept of riba, the opposite of riba is charity. But in traditionalist discourse, what you see is the opposition is built between a sale and a loan. So they tend to focus on the form of the transaction rather than the outcome of the transaction. Because what's happening in those days, um, pre-Islam, is that anybody who can't pay back um, is either enslaved, so they go into debt bondage, their entire family can be enslaved, their valuable property can be taken from them. If they own any cattle, that can be taken from them. Any orchards, any jewels, any valuables at all can be confiscated by the lender. You see exactly the same thing happening if you look at the Judaic discourse on riba as well. This is what the rabbis are concerned with. And in fact, there is a verse, I forget, I think it's Leviticus, I could be wrong, um, where God says that if you take somebody's garment as a pledge for a loan, Return that garment to them before nightfall, otherwise they'll get cold. <laughs> so this is how concerned God is. But why, why mention the garment is because clothes were very expensive back in the day. Taking somebody's warm garment away from them was, would create harm for them. And so this is how riba has been practiced historically. And this is what the Quran is referring to. And that is very different from how our classical law has dealt with riba, which is a matter in sale and types of sale. And a lot of the disagreements between the schools of thought, the Hanafis, the Malikis, the Shafis, the Hanbalis, are around what makes a sale a ribawi sale. So you feel as if you're looking at two very different things. The Quran is saying one thing, and then the Islamic law on riba is saying something completely different. And the modern movement of Islamic finance hasn't done that refresh. Again, they haven't done that refresh in thinking, and they've just run with whatever the classical scholars developed. In particular, they use the definition of um, any 
pre-stipulated increase on a loan is riba, which is a definition that the Hanafi scholar Al-Jassas developed back in the 10th century. That's what modern Islamic finance movements use as well. So that's kind of where I am in my um, historical discovery of, of what riba was yeah. at that time. That's super interesting. That really was very helpful. I didn't know a lot of those details. So in the Quran, it seems fairly clear that there was a practice at that time of, of doubling what was owed and that that's what the Quran was making reference to and not a percentage per se, which is a different type of... Um, I mean, doubling is a percentage, I guess. Doubling is a percentage, <laughs> yes. I'm glad you mentioned that, Veronica. I think that's a very good question. The Quran is not concerned about percentages. I think the, the reference to doubling is both technical and factual in the sense that that's how the Arabs practiced it. But that's one example of how riba can be practiced. I think the reference is also allegorical because in the same verse, God says that that which you give in charity grows very fast as well. So the doubling and redoubling is to do with the growth of the liability and what's owed to a lender, not necessarily that it's a 200% interest rate, because the moment you pin that down to 200%, what you're doing is you're stepping away from the moral concern of the Quran and actually just turning it into a technical concern around percentages. Right, because there's a whole metaphysical dimension here. So yes. what happens when you take and then take more, you are taking advantage of that person. It's like a negative absorbing energy mm -hmm. as opposed to giving or being compassionate with the other person, understanding the, the nature of that person's problem. And then understanding that you will get benefit from helping that will be on a spiritual level, not more on a karmic level, if you want to use that word. Yes. Um, it, it, but it won't happen through exploitative means of oppression. Mm-hmm. That's right. So the Qurans, and this is where, you know, Fazl Rahman talks about, and he gives pivotal importance to this verse. And Fazl Rahman had in his paper, Riba and Interest, it's an excellent paper. He wrote it back in 1964. And he's again critiquing the traditionalist point of view on Riba. And he talks about doubling and redoubling. For him, it is significant in terms of his definition of riba because he says that it's a fixed rate of interest and it's an exorbitant rate of interest, which is what the Christian idea of usury is. But the Quran is referring to doubling and redoubling more as a cultural reference because that's how the Arabs practiced it, not because the rate has to be 200% for interest to become riba. And this is where I think the complexity comes in when you talk about riba is that whilst interest per se is not a problem, interest can become riba depending on the conditions of the loan, depending on where the borrower and the lender are, how much power the lender has over the borrower and what consequences they can create for the borrower. Mm -hmm. um, so in the profit's time, the consequences that we're seeing is that people are ending up in debt bondage for generations on end. They are enslaved. They can't pay back their debts. Um, in medieval Europe, in Britain, you know that they were debtors' prisons. So people who didn't pay back their debts were thrown into prison for a long time. Um, we know that property was confiscated. There is a very uh, moving verse in the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament where the the people that Nehemiah is talking to, the, the Jews that he's, he's talking to, and this is just after Jerusalem has been won by Jews again. And they say to him that our own brothers have put us under this burden of usury and they've taken from us our lands and our women and our daughters. 
and that he must, as a prophet of God, he must address this imbalance. So you can see that the loans were hugely oppressive and exploitative. And that's the historical context in which the Quran is talking. And there's a long historical context here. I mean, if you read people like David Greber, who've written about 5,000 years of debt, I mean, his book is, is, yes. is very good. You may have read it. Mm. He talks about interest appearing on the horizon and usury as in personal exploitative loans given to the poor. They were appearing on the horizon in 2700 BC. So it's not new. Riba is not new. It's something very well known by the Arabs. And even now in our times, the more shocking cases of Riba are very well known, like payday lending, which is hugely mm -hmm. exploitative. Yeah. And my own personal story is that I have twice <laughs> taken out major student loans. Uh, in the US, the universities are quite expensive. And uh, my master's took me a decade and a half to pay off. And during that time, I felt a heavy sense of oppression. I mean, when I first graduated and I really realized, I mean, you know, theoretically you should really do the numbers before you start school, but you don't always really truly factor in interest and, and the true cost of that degree over time. And when you really factor that in and you realize that actually it's going to cost you about twice what you borrowed, if you really look at um, how that interest accumulates. I mean, I, I really felt a sense of depression uh, for a few years just from financial burden of that. And that's not uncommon. You have a lot of people in the U.S., uh, experiencing that and having to delay starting families, buying a house just because of these exorbitant loans. And it's something that's talked about, but has not really been addressed yet. Um, so we still are encountering that problem today. Um, and I would even say, and I'm not an expert at all in this area, but if you look into wealth levels, that the level of wealth inequality in the United States and the world over has increased drastically. The, the, the disparity has drastically increased and I can't help thinking that interest may be a part of that. So I think this issue is still relevant, but I think it's about approaching it in a nuanced way, not in a black and white way, which is what oftentimes happens, a reductionist way. Yes, I agree completely. And actually, in my literature review, this is exactly the point I'm making, that it's been approached in a very reductionist manner which means that we basically make ourselves bereft <laughs> when we try to understand the, the, the moral concern of the Quran. Um, it's interesting you've mentioned student loans in America. Student loans in America are different from student loans in Britain. Obviously, I know more about student loans in Britain. And I do get approached by Muslim students every year who are very concerned about taking out a student loan um, to study here. Um, and you know, in England and Wales, you have to take out a student loan to study. Scottish students studying in Scotland don't have to um, pay a fee, so they don't take out a loan. And there is a positive rate of interest on these loans. But the difference is, and this is where it becomes nuanced, the difference is that in Britain, the student loans have got a lot of safeguards built into them. Now, one of the safeguards is that you only pay if you earn 
over the, th the salary threshold, which is set at the average annual salary that you would expect a graduate to get. So that's roughly £27,000 a year. So if you earn more than £27,000 a year, then you pay back the loan and you pay it back at a low rate of interest. Then let's say if you were earning £50,000 a year, at which point you would be paying a bit more into the system. So there's a safeguard in there. We know that about 50% of the students actually never pay back the loan because they don't earn over and above the £27,000 because their earnings don't go above that threshold. So they don't repay. So the loan payments are not triggered, basically. It, wow. it's, it's like a graduate tax. It comes out of your income uh, when you paid. Well, uh, that's how the loan is generous, <laughs> which is very generous. So because those safe compared yeah. to the United States. Oh, absolutely. So because of those safeguards being built in, I always say to Muslim students here that these loans are not, they do not resemble the loans that the Quran is talking about because of the safeguards that have been built in there. And Muslim students shouldn't stop themselves from studying at university because that's what helps them not just broaden their horizons, but that actually it helps the uplift of the entire community. And in Britain, a lot of Muslims um, belong to working class backgrounds. And I'm not saying this in a judgmental way at all, but there is socioeconomic deprivation amongst Muslim communities here in Britain. And so going to university and getting um a job as a graduate is hugely beneficial to the community. So we shouldn't be judging the student loan as haram because it is not. It is not the type of loan that the Quran is talking about. And the exploitative elements in the loan have been taken away by the government by creating those safeguards, um, which means that the loan is only paid back if you have the capability to pay it back, which seems fair. I mean, in any case, uh, from a purely ideological point of view, I think that education is a public good and higher education should be free. That's my political view of the matter. But that's not where we are in terms of government policy. And so we have to deal realistically with the situation that we face in Britain. Neither do those loans affect your mortgage application in Britain. Um, and the, the government is not going to send court bailiffs to your door and take your car and your TV away to pay that loan back. So it is not an exploitative loan. It's not the ideal way of funding the system. That's my political view. But as a loan, it's it's not exploitative. So it's quite different from how loans work um, in America. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. So Farhad, you are a professor and lecturer at the University of Glasgow. Do students ever come to talk to you about this issue? Uh, I mean, not in university, but obviously on the Exploring Islam website, of course, I keep receiving questions about interest, uh, which I sometimes answer. And what you said, uh, Veronica, about the situation in the US was also news for me. I, I, I didn't know uh, about the, the situation of student loan in the US. My understanding of student loan is and was based on the UK situation that Sitara explained, uh, mm -hmm. which I totally agree is nothing close to what Quran refers to as riba. I think what Sitara said was very, very helpful. And I, I think I, I, I agree with everything she said. I was trying to find, oh, I want to challenge her on something, but I think I agreed with everything that she said. Uh, and uh, I know that before we started recording this, we were just chatting and I referred to Fazlur Rahman and I remember Sitara said that, yeah, he's, he's good, but I'm not necessarily in agreement with his definition. Uh, so when she explained, I think, a little bit what she meant by that, well, I also do not agree with 
his definition. Uh, I also think his definition is taking that verse of the Quran too literal as Alpha Muzaifa. And I don't think that's what really that verse is referring to. So let me uh, say a few things and then get back to Sitara again. But before that, uh, Sitara, uh, at the time of the Ottoman Empire, uh, they had interest. And the interest rate was something around 14%. Is that correct? Am I right? Um, if I remember correctly, I mean, I, I was looking at what the Ottoman Mujalla, which was their codified form of Hanafi law, what it said. I think it was 12%, but, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but yeah. it was roughly in that range. It was hefty. Yeah. Hefty is the word. Yeah, yeah. So it is interesting. It's interesting that people pick up something and without learning about it, they think that, oh, this is this is bid'ah and this is haram and you're introducing this into society, not knowing that, hang on, you know, at some point in the whole Muslim empire, this was totally fine and nobody, at least at that time, nobody challenged it that much. Anyway, I think Sitara very nicely directly talked about interest and riba and explained that very well. I don't want to repeat that. The only thing I would say is that for people who are interested, uh, Islamic banking and interest, a study of the prohibition of riba and its contemporary interpretation by Abdullah Said would be a good book to, to read. Although, unfortunately, I don't know for some reason, if you want to buy it, it's very expensive, but you should be able to find it in some libraries. And of course, there are lots of articles about this uh, that you can find. I want to approach this from more macro level. And basically, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, is this. Number one, is the Quran a book of regulations, a book of law, or is it the book of morals and morality? Or is it both of them? Um, I think if somebody says Quran is the book of regulations, I'm, I'm not sure if anybody would agree with that. Surely Quran is more than that. So the answer could be either that the Quran is book of regulations and morals, or the Quran is book of morals, and then on the basis of that morals, there are also some regulations. Either of these answers then comes back to this conclusion, that even if we consider the Quran to be a book of regulations, those regulations has an objective, and the objective are moral objectives. Uh, the, the, the wisdom behind the rules of the Quran or, or moral reasons, uh, goes back to the concept of taskiyah, which is purification. And why do I say that? Because <clears throat> the Quran says in, in Surah Al-Shams uh, that aflaha man zakaha. So the, the success is going to be for the person who purifies himself. So the Quran makes it clear what is one thing that we need to concentrate on, and that is Tazkiyah. And then when the Quran says in three places, or four actually, uh, why the Prophet was sent, uh, it says Liyuzakihim, Liyuzakikum, so that he would purify him. Yes, it also says to teach, uh, to, to, to deliver the, the verses of the Quran to you, and to, to teach you uh, Kitab and Hikmah, but all of that would be for one reason at the end, and that is Tazkiyah. It is very important to understand this point, because if we don't understand this point, then we will come up with some terminologies that I'm not 100% comfortable with. Terminologies like Islamic management, Islamic psychology, Islamic finance, 
Um, I do not consider that Islam has come to give us a school of thought for every discipline of our life. I don't see the Quran to be doing that. The Quran has come to help us with Tazkiyah. Now, if any part of our daily life is being affected by something that is an obstacle to Tazkiyah, then the Quran may have touched on that as well and say something about that as well. This is very important to understand because if we don't understand this, then we will try to <clears throat> establish what is that economy that Quran wants us, what's that finance that Quran wants us, and then we will start over-elaborating on these terminologies and then happens what will happen. Like you have volumes of books explaining and defining riba and writings like writings of Jahid and others, and um, it becomes more and more complicated. Uh, the Tazkiyah that I talked about, I've, we have said this before, has three dimensions. The whole Tazkiyah is concentrating on akhlaq, on morals. And these morals are on three dimensions. These are three relationships that we have. Relationship with God, relationship with ourselves, and the relationship with our surrounding including people, animals, environment, everything. And the whole Tazkiyah is about having good akhlaq, good morals in these three dimensions. So it is good akhlaq, good morals in your relationship with God that, that demands from you to pray. It is good akhlaq, good relationship with yourself that demands from you to, uh, to not engage in inappropriate relationship, for instance. And it is good relationship with others that demands you not to oppress them, not to exploit them. So on that basis, you may actually say that all the directions of the Quran are about akhlaq. See, if I had not mentioned the dimension of relationship with God, one could challenge me and say, hang on, how does namaz, prayer, what does that do with akhlaq? Well, of course, you can argue that prayer helps with akhlaq with others, but the prayer itself, is it really akhlaq? Yes. If you consider your relationship with God as one of those dimensions, then yes, having good akhlaq, good moral with God would be part of it. So then in these three dimensions, if we concentrate on the dimension that is your relationship with others, then you will see that the Quran has given us a number of instructions about how this should be and how this should not be. And all these instructions were based on things that happened at the time. It's very important to understand. So the Quran did not give us a list of what to do and what not to do for the rest of the life of the human being. No, no, no. These were some of the issues that were happening at the time and the Quran addressed it. One of those issues was oppressing others, exploiting others by the use of what we now know as riba. And this is what Sister Sitara very nicely explained, the situation and the background of this. So the whole thing was not to establish an economic formula. That wasn't the case. The whole thing was about akhlaq. When I read the Quran, if I forget all the hadiths that we have about riba, if I even forget the PhD of Sister Sitar, 
If I forget anything that I have heard about riba and just sit down and read the verses of the Quran about riba. So the verse that says you are doing this and this is as afa muzaafa. What is the best way of translating this as afa muzaafa in English? It's doubling and redoubling. Doubling and redoubling. Often translated, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. doubling and redoubling. And I do agree that that does not necessarily mean mathematical way of doubling. It's referring to just um, an extreme increase in interest. When I read this, when I read the part that says, if you continue doing this, be ready for harbom min Allah wa rasuleh, be ready to be in fight with God and his prophet. When I read the verse that says, you can have the capital back, of course, and then it says, Lot has limuna wa lot has you will not oppress and you are not supposed to be oppressed yourself. When I read all this, then I do not consider that student loan that Sister Sitara was talking about to have anything to do with this. I consider it, if there is an oppression going on here, the oppression will be when I say to that student, or if Sister Sitara says to that student, that yes, it is haram, so you cannot get that money, meaning you cannot continue your education. This is it. This is oppression. This is oppression. That is that oppression that Quran is trying to stop. And we are actually injecting that oppression because of not understanding what is the main concept behind these verses. So, yes, I think I agree with Sister Sitara. Uh, my thinking is that riba, uh, not, not all interest is riba. Uh, riba uh, is something that creates oppression, uh, exploitation. Uh, also, another thing, and Sister Sitara did not talk about this, I'm interested to hear her views about this, but on the same basis, even, even if it is riba, <clears throat> I do not consider paying it to be haram. Because when you pay it, you're oppressed, you're the oppressed one, you're not the oppressor. I do not consider paying it to be haram. In one of, one of my writings, I wrote that the only scenario that I can think when paying it may also become haram is a situation like this. Imagine that the states or the prophet of God are not trying to remove riba from the society. They are trying to remove it. They are introducing new ways of getting money without riba. And then you instead of contributing into this movement, are insisting in, in paying interest and in this way, keeping alive that corrupted system. Yes, if it is that case, then I can say, yeah, indirectly you can say that you're helping with the system. So yeah, it can be haram. But normal circumstances, paying money, even if it is riba, it is not haram because you are the one who is oppressed. Yeah, that was, can I just jump in here? Quick? Yeah. I w- that was going to be a question that I had. And I might have run this by you at some point, Farhad, but I have a friend who became Muslim, who didn't grow up Muslim, but she be- became Muslim. And she wanted to buy an apartment and she didn't have enough savings to do it. So obviously her other option was to get a mortgage, get a loan from the bank. And she she called me and asked me, And honestly, I don't remember if I talked to you about it or not, but my own opinion at that time, without having read much about it, but just using my own rationality, which I feel that 
I'm entitled to do within a reasonable level. My own rationality was if she's taking out the mortgage and she's the one that's ultimately harmed by that interest, how would that be sinful behavior? It just doesn't make any logical sense. If there's any uh, blame to fall on anybody, it would be the bank, if there were to be. But it just doesn't make sense that that someone is culpable of paying extra interest because they're the ones that are actually suffering from that. Well, yeah, I mean, I can tell you, and I would like to hear from Sidhar as well, but I can tell you that that understanding comes from hadiths. And uh, that hadith itself has been interpreted in different ways. And again, the problem of approaching like this is that in our, when we try to understand hadith, we do not um, base that hadith on the concept that Quran is presenting. If we do it that way, it can help us to understand the hadith itself. One other thing to say, and then I want Sister Sitara to talk again. Whatever I said, this is about whether whether this interest that we have today is halal or haram. This is not about whether this interest is good or bad. These are two different things. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm not an economist. Okay, there are some people who argue that look, there's absolutely no way that we can live without interest. And then there are others who say, no, actually, there are ways and you capitalist people do not allow that. That is not my area of expertise. I don't know about that. I don't have any opinion about that. Okay. If somebody tells me, don't you think it would would have been better if there was no interest and people could just get these things somehow? I think I would have been crazy if I say, no, I don't think so. Of course, of course, it would be better. Right. But the question is, that riba that the Quran is talking about, is that riba equal to any kind of interest? That's the question. And I think the answer that we tried to say was, no, not necessarily. So I stop here. What are your thoughts, Satara? Um, no, that was really useful, um, Farhad. And, and I think the clarity you've given, it is reductionist to say that bank interest is the same as riba or all interest is the same as riba. I think we've established that that's a very reductionist view of the matter. There's a lot more nuance to it. And one of the examples I would give you is from my own personal experience, where I can tell you that zero interest loans can also be exploitative. If we fixate ourselves with rate of interest, we do end up losing, again, that moral priority of the Quran. So when I was in Pakistan, and it's fairly normal in Pakistan for you to have servants in your house, and there was a maid in my house, lovely lady. She um, came from a very poor background. She, her sister, her brother, uh, her brother's wife and her elderly father, five adults who lived in that one household. And what they had in terms of a house is um, one room, which everybody shared, and one small courtyard. And they were so poor that they couldn't afford medicine if somebody became unwell uh, in Pakistan. You know, healthcare is a problem. Access to healthcare is a serious problem. And they had one light bulb in the house, which used to tell me that they had installed the light bulb in the doorway uh, between the bedroom and the courtyard. So one light bulb would light up the bedroom, the only bedroom they had and the courtyard. And the kitchen was literally just a small kerosene fired stove and they owned one valuable item which was a pedestal fan. Pakistan is a very hot country. Not having a fan in the summer means that you can actually become dehydrated and become unwell very quickly. Now her brother became unwell 
and they couldn't buy medicine for him. So they went to a local loan shark. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning this here is because I want to talk about financial exclusion as well, which is something that doesn't feature in the Islamic finance literature at all. So they went to a local village loan shark and that lady gave them. So if imagine the fan is worth 1500 rupees, I'm talking about nearly 15 years ago. And the lady gave them a thousand rupees so they could go and buy medicine. But she took away their fan as collateral. Now, this is a zero interest loan, but it is a hugely oppressive loan because not only is it inflicting harm on a family, it is also depriving them of something valuable that is likely to be impossible for them to buy again. And the valuable that she's taken away, the value of that pedestal fan is far higher than the loan that she's advanced. So if we fixate ourselves on the, on the rate of interest, then we will actually not give consideration to these shocking cases of riba. So just a positive rate of interest does not make something riba. You have to look at the terms and conditions of the loan. You have to look at the circumstances in which the loan is given. So I'm glad that, you know, Farhad was, was, was talking about, you know, interest and loans and just by eradicating interest. I mean, the Islamic banking movement thinks that by eradicating interest, you can eradicate these injustices. No, that's not going to happen. And the reason for that, we've already established that they're based on a theory which is reductionist that they are, in all of the Islamic finance literature I have read, it is devoid of any discussion at all about the vulnerable in society. Now, if you look at the Quran and the Quran's moral concerns, who features in the Quran again and again, the orphan and the miskeen, the poor and the wayfarer, the travelers and the widow, they are the people and, and those who are in debt. These are the people who feature again and again in the Quran. This is where God is concerned about the most vulnerable in society. In all of Islamic finance literature, you will never come across examples of the kind of loan that I've just shared with you with my real life experience. They never talk about the, the fact that in South Asia, you still have mil tens of millions of brickkin workers who are still in a state of debt bondage. They don't talk about farmers who need agricultural inputs too, because these are often subsistence farmers. They need wheat, they need fertilizer, they need everything else that goes into the land so you can produce a crop. And they don't get agricultural inputs. And who do they rely on? They rely on these loan sharks. Uh, they rely on, exorbit on, uh, on loans which either have an exorbitant rate of interest or that would lead to severe financial hardship and even slavery for them. I mean, the feudal system in Pakistan is still intact, which is really a form of slavery. And the, the entire Islamic finance literature is devoid of those discussions. It doesn't talk about financial exclusion at all. So what Islamic banking is, in my view, apart from the fact that it stood on a theory which is not tenable in the light of the Quran, it is also something which is very elitist. So effectively, Islamic banking was funded through petrodollars. You know, in the 1970s and 80s, you have oil-producing countries putting huge sums of money into Islamic banks. Islamic banking products are more expensive than conventional banking products. I always say they charge a bit of a taqwa premium <laughs> because if you're a practicing Muslim, you're going to Islamic banks and you'll pay a bit more. I'm being quite harsh, I acknowledge. And then on top of all of that, they have not removed any financial exclusion. So after 60 years of Islamic banking, nothing has changed in terms of reducing poverty. Nothing has changed in, 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 in there is no grassroots development. There's no uplift of society. 
So the point I'm trying to make is that the fixation and interest and removal of interest does not achieve the purpose that the Quran has set out for Muslims, which is to create a system which is free of oppression. And it's fairer. So we have to make an effort to understand the Quranic concept of riba and then bring it forward to our times and think about how we implement it in our times. And creating an Islamic banking sector, which is, you know, by any other name, smells just as sweet. Um, Islamic banking is very much a roundabout way of charging interest because a lot of Islamic banking products do charge interest, whether they call it markup or whether they call it a margin or whatever, it is still interest. Um, and the excuse they would give is, well, in the wider context, in the global context, we, we sat within an interest-based system, so we have no choice but to deal in that. The question I would ask is, think about the problems in the global system and how you can eradicate them rather than fixating on the idea of interest. Um, there are lots of issues. I mean, if you come back to mortgage, for example, mortgages are fine. You want to buy a house. You don't have the money to buy a house. Bank gives you money. You start living in that house. So you're benefiting from living in that house. And then you pay almost like a rental. The mortgage payment is like a rental that you pay back to the bank. And you also acquire a portion of equity, your ownership in the house. This is what a mortgage is. In of itself, it is not haram, but there are elements of it, of it which can be improved. For example, in Britain at the moment, if you can't repay because let's say you've fallen ill or your income has dropped, they would give you three months in which they would not ask you for repayments. They give you almost like a three-month holiday. But what they do is they keep charging interest in the background. I think that can be questioned. I think three months is not enough. If you have long-term illness, then banks should suspend interest and capital payments from you for six months at least to let, give you time to get back on your feet. I think when house prices drop, banks don't take sh share in, in any of the losses and the borrower ends up in a situation of negative equity where they owe more money than what the house is worth. I think that is something for us to look at from a moral point of view. But these are improvements in the existing mortgage system, rather than making the argument which traditionalists are making, which is, well, remove interest from mortgaging. Well, that hasn't happened. Islamic banks use what they call a diminishing musharika, which I won't go into the detail of it, but in effect, they charge an interest rate on the loan that they advance. The, the legal structure of the transaction is different. The contractual structure is different, but the net effect is the same. You pay them an interest um, on the loan that they've advanced to you. So the point I'm trying to make is rather than looking for these, the, these kind of strategies of circumventing interest and fixating on interest, we should think about the oppression that exists in the system and what the sources of the, that oppression is. I would rather that Pakistan developed a banking system that gave agricultural inputs to farmers on very fair terms and conditions and also in those contracts, if they agreed that if due to, um, let's say, um, reduced rainfall in a year or flooding, if they lose their crop, then they will not pay back. That for me is fair. I don't see yeah. any oppression in that. Mm -hmm. And I think it also means that farmers then go and, and they will take loans from a regulated banking sector with all of the safeguards that that regulation brings rather than relying on village loan sharks. Yeah. Um, if you ever wanted to think about becoming finance minister, you have my vote, sister. <laughs> uh, no, seriously. <laughs> um, in other words, if there are Muslim scholars who want to contribute into this concept and try to come up with something that can help and can get us closer to the message of the Quran, instead of trying to find a figure 
<laughs> on what interest rate needs to be, one, two, three, four, instead of that, they need to come up with a set of indicators to understand what is the meaning of oppression, what can indicate an oppression situation, yeah, and define those things and then try to apply those things to other things. Just to just to say that, you know, these are two totally different subjects, but it is interesting that the approach, and in my understanding, and I think in Sister Sitara's understanding, the same wrong approach, you, know, you see that happens in all of these, just to show you that the problem is not just our approach to the concept of interest. The problem is our approach generally to these kind of instructions that come from Quran or Sunnah or Hadith. I would like to give that this example that I think I've talked about before, but hey, I want to say it again. And that is, uh, you know, um, the Hadith that for men, it says that if your dress covers your ankle, then that part of your dress will be in fire. And then what you see in some prayer rooms and mosques today is that uh, some Muslim boys and men, they just fold up their trousers, like their jeans, and bring it above the ankle, and they stand and, and read their prayers. Uh, this, to me, is a very good example and case study, actually, to see how people forget what the real prop situation, the, the real story behind this was, and just take the, the, the appearance the surface level of an instruction. So to start with, the hadith does not say during the prayers if, if your dress is on your ankle. It talks about it generally. So if you really think that you need to fold up your jeans, excuse me, you need to then keep, keep it folded up all the time, not just during the prayers. That to start with. However, if we look at the hadith and if you look at the background of that hadith and if you look at the other ahadiths that are parallels to that and explain that, what we understand from this was that at the time of the Prophet, and many people at that time did not have proper dress, um, walking almost almost nude in the, in the roads in the society was totally normal, because, not because of fashion, because people did not have a dress. And in that situation, having a very long dress was an indication of you being very wealthy. And there were people who would show off their long dresses to the others when they would walk. Uh, and that, of course, was very aggressive and, and selfish thing to do. So then comes what is narrated from the prophet that if it comes on your ankle or further than that, it will be in fire, meaning that you should not show off, you know, that's the thing. So if you if you have wealth, you should not show it off in an aggressive way, in, an, in a way that make other people feel sad. You find that some same people who fold up their trousers, for instance, they're showing off their watch, they're showing off their sunglasses, they're showing off their cars, but they just fold up the trouser because of that hadith. Totally misunderstandings. This is about dress, that was about finance. But can you see the common mistake here? The common mistake is to take an instruction on a very surface level and trying to deal with it technically and defining technically what that means instead of trying to understand what was the story behind it. Right. Anything else to add or should we wrap it up? I think just from my point of view, and I, I want to give absolute respect 
and credibility. And I give a lot of value to the concerns that Muslims have about riba. I think they have been, I think those concerns and the popularity of the prohibition of riba has done something amazing, which is that it has brought the issue of ethics and banking Mm -hmm. back to the fore. Mm-hmm. So I don't want, especially after listening to this podcast, for people to feel that their that their faith based uh, decisions are being questioned or critiqued or not respected. I think that we must recognize that if Muslims are concerned about this as a moral issue, mm-hmm. then we must give it importance and respect. And it is the Islamic banking experiment itself. I I never dismiss these things because these are part of our progress, of our civilization progress. And I think you have to try something to then find out what works and what doesn't work and how it can be made better. Mm. So I think what I'm trying to say here is the fact that Muslims are concerned about halal banking or ethical forms of banking is fantastic. I think the Islamic finance literature has got even other secular scholars and non-Muslim scholars thinking about the ethics of money. And I think that's a huge contribution that we've made to the debate because we know how um, strongly linked finance and movement of money is to how we consume, you know, how we produce, how we consume. And that's linked to the crisis we're going through at the moment, which is the environmental crisis. Hmm. Where do banks keep their money? Where do pension funds keep their money? These are all important questions. And I think the fact that the ethics of money and the ethics of finance are being questioned, I think that's brilliant. So the Islamic finance movement has definitely made that debate very dynamic and forced the world to sit up and think about money and how we use it and how detrimental it is for societies and for the planet and how we can make it better. So I want to give credibility and a thumbs up to everybody who's concerned about it. Equally, I think Islamic banking needs to up its game. I think it needs to go back to its definitions of riba. It needs to bring nuance and a Quran-centered understanding of riba. I think that's what's lacking from a from a macro point of view. And they need to concern them, themselves with the vulnerable in society. They need to think about what financial oppression now looks like. In other words, they need to develop some kind of theory of exploitation, financial exploitation. And then they need to think about how they can make credit available. And when I say credit, I mean soft credit, reasonable loans available to society at large to reduce financial exclusion, because that is where grassroots development will come from. I think the disservice Islamic banking has done is that it has made just banking overall haram. And often I hear a lot of Muslim businessmen who have got great entrepreneurial spirit, but they're not growing their businesses because they're afraid to take out a bank loan. And what it's doing is it's stopping development from happening. Mm. So I think that by declaring interest haram, they have done Muslims overall a disservice. And we all know that at the moment in the Muslim world, a lot of our countries are still third world economies with very precarious economic and financial circumstances of the majority of population living in those Muslim lands. So whilst I don't want to take a utilitarian perspective, I need to be very clear. I'm not saying that we make riba halal. That's not what I'm saying. And often, you know, when you critique the traditionalist view, you often get this accusation. Oh, my God, she's making riba halal. That's not what I'm doing. I'm saying that we need to understand the profound wisdom behind the prohibition of riba. 
that we need to understand the rationale for the prohibition and we need to understand riba itself more fully so we can then design a system which would be of benefit not just to muslims but to society to, to all of humankind and that's kind of where i want to leave it i think we need to up our game that's wonderful wonderful summary and i do agree that there is a wisdom in that what we understand is a prohibition of riba as an exploitative because i really felt it in my body for a few years in my mind and my body when i had that economic burden it really impacted me very negatively for a period of time and luckily i was able to get out of that but some people don't and so there is a lot of wisdom there and i do think we need ethics in banking in general and transparency the world is ever more complex and i think we have a right to access and participate in that money in a fair way that's serving everybody not yeah. just the people at the top yeah yeah that's right i agree and unethical practices for example the last credit crunch we had in 2007 2008 it was driven by two unethical practices one was to give out mortgages to people who couldn't afford them and these were high interest rate mortgages and we know that the crisis spiraled from america that's where they called subprime mortgages mm-hmm. and the second unethical practice was what we call the sale of debt which is that you take lots of loans you chop them up and you rebundle them and you and you then say they're safe loans which is what our credit which is what american credit rating agencies were doing so they were mixing risky loans with safer loans giving them an overall rating that these are safe loans and then selling them on now this process is very unethical it creates that house of cards that fragility in the financial system so this is the kind of critique that should be coming from proponents of ethical banking and what i really really love about this whole riba debate is from my point of view is how ecumenical it is actually riba is a concern for the judeo christian scholars riba is a concern for muslim scholars ethical banking is a concern for the whole planet it is actually a a space where both you know religious and secular minds can come together and right. actually devise something i see it as ecumenical i see it yeah. as bringing people together for the greater good of humanity so i think that that's how we should be approaching the, the the profound wisdom in the quran we should be approaching it more as a as a kind of an ethical movement in banking to make things better to 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 stop the unethical practices in banking and then think about how specifics like different types of loans work for different people yes you can then talk about how interest rates are calculated and how exploitative it is etc but for me this is about reducing exploitation and we should open up that space to critique unethical practices of banks at a global level which then create this financially fragile system which when you have a credit crunch has such an impact on 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 the global economy so i'm not saying that the system overall is fair i think the system is unfair i think the elements of the system which are hugely unethical which is why it doesn't work for everybody it works for those who already have wealth who already have income generating assets who already own property already own capital but just lo- loans or riba is one contribution to that certain types mm-hmm. of loans are one contribution to that what we're now seeing is that there are people who've amassed such a huge amount of wealth for example the chief executive of amazon who's got you know mm-hmm. billions hundreds of billions of dollars in wealth um they have accumulated that not through loans but through what our scholars would say equity which they consider halal 
you know, ownership in a business. Whereas at the moment, private equity or big investors coming together to strip companies of their assets to uh, make really, um, I would say, exploitative deals with uh, businesses or with countries. In, in Africa, you have this issue of vulture capital, which is all funded by big private investors who are investing in it, not in a form of loan, but as equity. And so equity has also become of a predatory nature. And if we fixate right. ourselves, if we fixate ourselves with interest rates, if we fixate ourselves with loans, then we deprive ourselves of having these bigger conversations about how money is working for people. And I think that's where the conversation should be if we take the more nuanced view of riba. Right, because exploitation can happen in many ways. Absolutely, and, and, not just through loans. Yeah. Right. And you were inspiring me as you were talking to Tara to envision an ethical banking system, which I know in theory exists, truly a, another system that could be pioneered that Muslims could really take on. But from a larger umbrella that is ethical banking in general, not the smaller label of Islamic banking, but something much more generous and and open. Um, yes. And working from, as Farhad was saying, you know, think about what oppression looks like, come up with the categories of oppression, see what financial exploitation looks like, and then work backward from that. So I would say if we want to have a non-ribavi or a halal system, if I can use the term halal banking system in Pakistan, then it must address the needs of those who are in debt bondage. It must address the needs of those who are under the burdens of feudalism. It must address the needs of people like the, you know, the, the maid in my house who had to give up the only fan in her house and, and you know, kind of experience the heat of summer because she couldn't afford medicine for her brother. Until those cases are eradicated, and these are the shocking cases of riba, for me, Islamic banking, until that's done, Islamic banking will remain very much an elitist experiment, which is what it is at the moment. So you've got the you know, malls in Dubai and, and, and you've got the bonds which are funding all of the construction activity and those big projects, <laughs> whilst you've got people who are suffering under the yoke of exploitative lending and, and we're not freeing them. Okay, so I think you need to hurry up and finish your PhD once and for all. And then you need to go out in the world and, as Farhad said, whether it's become finance minister or something else. But I think you really have a very clear vision and passion and that you could really not that I'm sure that what you're doing at the University of Leeds is great. But I don't know, uh, Satara, I could see you really doing great things in the world. Thank you for that. <laughs> I think you have more belief in me than I do. I think all we can do and Farhad would also agree with that, Veronica, is as Muslims and as researchers, all we can do is make a very humble contribution to a vast body of knowledge. Whether that's accepted or not is something we just have to wait and see. But where I'm coming from is, again, my formative experience in Pakistan and of seeing abject poverty. What drives me is my upset over, over poverty hmm. and the kind of poverty you see, which is qualitatively very different from the poverty you would see in Britain, for example. You know, when you say poverty in Pakistan, you're talking about ex an extreme level of poverty. It's unimaginable. And that's where I'm coming from. And I think what frustrates me is, the, the tendency in traditionalist Islamic thought to just do what we, we would say casuistic thinking, you know, kind of looking at the minutiae of things and, you know, trying to worry about the forms of a transaction and should be a sale, should be a loan, and then trying to come up with subterfuges when, when you know, I'm sat here thinking, but we still have poor people who don't have access to credit. They can't 
improve their lot because they don't have access to money and they will never have access to that money. And so if a fair banking system with soft loans, which are cognizant, as the Quran says, of the borrower circumstances, So if somebody can't pay back, give them time to pay back. If we can set up something like this, I think we would make a huge, huge improvement in grassroots development. So you can you can see that that's where the the drive comes from is 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 observing poverty. I mean, we were we, I'm a very privileged person. I've not been in that situation myself, but we have seen some shocking cases of suffering due to poverty. And it is a shame then that Islamic banking, rather than thinking about the vulnerable and starting from that and then thinking about how riba was was affecting the vulnerable at the time of the revelation, the Quran, rather than keeping the focus on that, on the social historical, they've actually just completely changed the focus to these legalistic views of riba. And that's what we have. The whole literature is legalistic. It's reductionist. Hence, we have not seen any impact on the ground. In my view, we have not seen any impact on the ground. Any closing thoughts, Farhad? No, thank you very much, uh, Sitara. I thought that was wonderful. And I think she summarized it very well as well. Uh, So just saying thank you and nothing more. All right. Thank you to the both of you. Wonderful episode with a lot of learning for me in particular. So, salam alaikum to, to both of you, to our listeners. Everybody take care. Thank you. Salam alaikum. Thank you. Salam alaikum. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. We welcome feedback at onelightchat at gmail.com. That's onelightchat, O-N-E-L-I-G-H-T-C-H-A-T at gmail.com. Or leave us a voice message at anchor.fm slash Veronica Polo. Peace and blessings.